0: Touch with technology with tech stuff from howstuffworks.com. Hey there, and welcome to episode 700 of Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. Joining me in the studio is Ben Bubble.
1: Hey, Jonathan, I just want to let you know that I meant to rent that tux that I'm always talking about renting for this show. This is huge. 700 episodes.
0: Yeah, I I do appreciate the fact that you have filled the entire audio podcast studio room with confetti at waist height.
1: Yeah, was it confetti or money that you wanted?
0: I didn't read the end of the email. You know, it looks like you actually got this confetti from... The yeah. Department of Treasury, cause it does look like you've got shredded, <laughs> I assume you got it from there, cause you can get shredded money from them. Yeah, um, yep. I'm gonna hope that that's in fact where this is from, but it is very festive, I
1: appreciate it. Hey, thank you, you know, because we live in an urban environment, we have all kinds of cool stuff in our city, like we do have a federal mint here, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of cool things in Atlanta. In fact, we could do a full episode just on the neat stuff in Atlanta, and now that I'm saying that, I'm kind of regretting that I didn't think about it beforehand. <laughs> but the the thing we decided to go with it was a, a several people have requested over the years of tech stuff that we cover how subways work, mm-hmm. uh, not the sandwich shop, not Subway
1: and eat fresh. Th- thank you for correcting me before yeah. we went on air.
0: Yeah, uh, there was an incident beforehand, but we won't speak of it. And Instead, we're going to talk about subway systems, like subway trains, because it's a fascinating topic. Uh, the technology is varied from uh, really super simple stuff in the early, early days of mm-hmm. subways to pretty sophisticated systems mm-hmm. to today, in today. Um, now, to understand subways, we have to understand what was the need for a subway? What is the story of how subways became a necessity? And it all starts back in the mid-19th century when we start seeing this incredible move of people moving from pastoral areas to urban areas, to Mm -hmm. cities. Mm -hmm. As the opportunities for jobs and to make money increased in cities and decreased out in farmland areas. Yeah. So, industrial revolution is a big part of this.
1: Right? right. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the one of the strange things is that for a lot of the people moving into these urban areas and for the people who were, you know, the the functioning government of these urban areas, nobody was quite sure how to City, really. Right. These were built on, uh, these medieval, uh, medieval, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I butchered it both times. But they're, they're built on these much older plans. Narrow lanes, you yeah. know, uh, the, the ditch going through the center of the road and they were not equipped to handle all these pedestrians, let alone the the carts, uh, you you and I were calling this the uh, B.S. era, yeah. uh, for before subways. But we we have to paint a picture for this, and and you have some um, specific statistics too about uh, the the just the sheer growth,
0: right? So imagine, if you will, you've got this urban environment that that Ben was describing. You've got these narrow roads. You've got the ditch that's in the middle. Uh, you've got uh, traffic that's pedestrian and and horse traffic, mm-hmm. cart traffic, wagons, that kind of stuff, yeah, all going in these cities. Uh, we're going to focus largely on London here because London, as it turns out, is the first city to incorporate a subterranean train system. Uh, so, London uh, in the in 1800, London was already the world's largest city at that time, mm-hmm. and uh, it had one million people. 50 years later, so just five decades later, it went from 1 million to 2.5 million people. That's explosive growth in a relatively short amount of time.
1: Yeah, it's an extra London and a half.
0: Yeah. And imagine, if you will, what this does with uh, population density, with traffic. I mean, you had uh, issues with housing. It was it was hard to get good housing in London. Oh, yeah. Not, not that that's... You know, that's totally different now. (laughs) Um, If you are incredibly wealthy, it's not hard, I guess, to get good housing in London. But Mm -hmm. otherwise, it can be a bit of a challenge. So one of the things that governments wanted to do was inspire people to still live further outside of the city where they could have a much better living condition. Oh, yeah. And then be able to come into the city to work and then leave the city to go back home. To commute. Right. Right. So that way they wouldn't be forced to live in tiny conditions or in slums in or squalor. Yeah, exactly. They wanted to, you know, that's no way for a person to live. It, it, now we understand that all the jobs are here, so we don't want to deny them the access to the jobs and we need people to do that. Yeah, these jobs. yeah. But we don't need them to be living in inhuman conditions.
1: Right. And also that's, that's dangerous for the city overall when you go to crime, when you go to sanitation, uh, but, it's it's no secret and i don't think this is an offensive thing to say nor spoiler it's no secret that parts of london were pretty rough so these people who had you know had jobs not necessarily um very high dollar jobs right, right. Uh, yep. the equivalent of the middle class sure. would be uh would ride steam railways right or yeah. coal powered rail
0: yeah so you know, the coal was there to generate the heat that would convert water to steam. The steam would actually power the train, mm-hmm. but you're, you know, using coal as the main fuel to, to start the steam in the first place. It's not like steam just happens on its own. Right. You gotta heat it up first, heat water up first. So there were railways that existed in, in England and they had stations that terminated uh, on the outskirts, what were then the outskirts right, of yeah. London, but city City officials had passed laws that, that restricted those railways from going any further into the city, because there mm-hmm. just wasn't room. Yeah. There wasn't room for a train to come in further into London than on the outskirts. So, your big stations at the time were Paddington, mm-hmm. uh, it was a, Euston was another one, and King's Cross. Yep. Those were your three big ones. So, you could have people ride in to those points from further out in the countryside, but, Once they got there, they still had to make their way further into London to work wherever they were working, which meant that traffic was still nightmarish.
1: Yeah, and this is pedestrian traffic, so much of it, which to me is... E- even more uh undesirable than being stuck in a car yeah uh or on a horse, I guess I've never been in a horse jam, but yeah, but uh just being in this constant crowd because more than seven hundred thousand people every day
0: rode the train to the edge of the city and then somehow got to work. Right. Yeah. Which makes my own commuting stories like the war stories I used to tell seem pretty pale in comparison. You have some pretty good ones though. I do. I mean, I used to have to, uh, I had a commute that was three hours a day for a while. That was, you know, total commute from Mm -hmm. the, the commute in and the commute out was three hours total. That was, it's a significant chunk of your day just spent getting to and from your, your, your job. But, uh, there were other forms of mass transit uh, sure. before the subway, and, and beyond the train systems, there were omnibuses. Mm-hmm. Now, the original omnibuses were not motor vehicles; right, they were horse-drawn wagons. Essentially, some of them, like you could, some of them were like double-decker type things, mm-hmm. like the old double-decker buses, except a cart drawn by horse. If you ever see any of the old footage, like there are old films that show some of the traffic in cities like London that, mm-hmm. when when there still were quite a few horses. Like there were some cars by that time, but there was still a lot of horse traffic. To see the omnibuses being pulled, it looks terrifying to me. Like these things look like they would flip over if you sneezed wrong. Just
1: thing's precarious, huh?
0: And people are just packed in them. Like they're they're <laughs> sitting shoulder to shoulder. And I'm just thinking, boy, those poor horses, too. I mean, it's gotta be tough. And there were those also created even more traffic. I mean, it's sure. not like it's not like that solved a lot of problems. Plus Where do you put them when you're not using them? You gotta have a place to park these things.
1: Right, right. right. They're not, they're not small. You can't really parallel park an omnibus. And, uh, it's gotta be a pain even with just a, a single horse, especially if you have crime. Now, cars, of course, came in. Everybody who has to pay the various, uh, traffic usage taxes in London currently, uh, probably probably has a couple of regrets about their cars, yeah. cars cars honestly even though they came after subways and of course after horses they had their own set of similar problems yep. most importantly where do i put it
0: yeah <laughs> right? exactly yeah if you are if you are living in a city that's built on a medieval city plan mm-hmm. at least parts of the city are that way there probably aren't that many places where you could put a car Right. Yeah. You know, and then it's all it's kind of like New York City, too. There are there are parking areas in New York City they are like parking garages, mm-hmm. parking decks and that sort of thing. But uh street parking is one of those things that people just guard jealously.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, the whole
0: story about you circle a block 60 times waiting for a spot to open up. So that way you don't have to walk an extra 150 feet or whatever. It might right. Be.
1: And, and there um, there's still people who who just uh stay in a parking space and wait until the cleaners come the yeah. street cleaners and just move it for the street cleaners right. and then park back right? because it's that valuable it's it's crazy and one of one of the things when these cars didn't um really solve them many problems right. the, the railways could only do so much the horses weren't helping although i'm sure they you know were doing their best it's because all of these forms of transit had one thing in common they were all competing for the same space. They yeah. wanted to go above ground.
0: Right. There was no no other means of getting around, right? They didn't have elevated pathways, right. so you couldn't go yeah. above the traffic. So that really limited what you could do. It, it, you know, any solution you had just meant adding more fuel to the fire, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so here's some other challenges. Let's say that you've got a great design for your city. Let's say that you, you have planned this out from the beginning. There are certain cities that had the benefit of early civil engineering planning from Mm -hmm. the start. Like Mm -hmm. Salt Lake City is a great example.
1: Yeah, that's a good idea.
0: It's laid out in a grid that's very easy to understand. It's very easy for you to navigate. Um, There are other cities that are laid out in a way that (laughs) defies logic. (laughs) Atlanta, Georgia, just throwing it out there. (laughs) We don't really have blocks in Atlanta, Georgia. We've got blobs. Yeah. You yeah. know, surrounded by one-way streets that only direct you into some sort of Nether region where Cthulhu reigns or something? I don't know. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I have uh I I've, I've been there as well.
0: Right. So, in this case, you know, how do you if it's been planned out really well, uh you may not be able to make any alterations. Like you might not be able to make the streets wider to right. allow for a streetcar, for example. Mm-hmm. And even if you did have a streetcar, That's still on the surface. It's still competing for that same space. Here in Atlanta, we can tell you we just had, not not too long ago, a streetcar prototype program rolled out, Mm -hmm. literally rolled out, and we've already had multiple incidents of accidents, right? Rolled out. Yeah. All right, okay. I'm sorry. No.
1: No. 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 I apologize.
0: Yeah, Wait. Only... It's my show. I don't <laughs> apologize. Yeah. I'm not on car stuff.
1: Uh. Right. The uh. The the streetcar uh is is kind of a proof of concept, and we're and it, what you're saying is absolutely true. We're seeing a uh, a spate of accidents, yeah, or incidents, maybe. Yeah. And luckily, there haven't been any serious injuries or anything, but it's because an entire city of drivers. Uh, that's normally only in that part of town when they're in a hurry to or from somewhere. Yeah. Is trying to navigate around this thing that moves it at its own pace. Right.
0: And they're not familiar with it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's growing pains. It's one of those things. you're sure. Gonna, yeah. And, and there, there are other arguments about the streetcar we won't go into because they're very hyper local. And if you're not in Atlanta, you're not going to care.
1: Yeah. It's going to be weird, but there, there's another solution too, right? right. Not just the street.
0: Yeah, there's also the elevated uh, solution, the elevated trains like the L in Chicago. Um, have you ever ridden the L? In I have. I have. I love the L. I
1: thought it was amazing. So uh just quick sidebar. So my girlfriend took me to Chicago for my birthday, and I'm a big old cheapskate, and I, I didn't want to, <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to, I don't want to do anything. So I was told Crabapple uh, until, you know, we got on the plane, and hit me, we're really going, and it was so exciting to just get on this train cuz the views are great. Yep. You can go pretty much anywhere. Yep. Uh and and as a transit rider in Atlanta, that's not the case. Right.
0: At, the Atlanta transit is very very limited. Now mm-hmm. the System we have in Atlanta has a series of trains that some, some sections of the track are above ground, some are below ground. Right, yeah. So ours is kind of a hybrid, uh, surface and subway system. Mm.
1: And the, and the, but the elevated thing, as, as great as it can be, it's yeah. not gonna work for every city.
0: Right. You, you still have to build supports for that elevated system, right? You have to be able to secure the bridge that the tracks are on to something, whether it's pylons or to buildings mm-hmm, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that solution works in some situations, but not in others. So you've pretty much exhausted all your other uh, uh, opportunities. The only thing left to you is to go down below street level mm-hmm. so that you're no longer competing for that landscape and you can just get people to and from locations underground Thus, they're not impacting traffic at all. You can actually right. help alleviate traffic by mm-hmm. uh, encouraging a lot of people to go underground as opposed to cluttering up the streets. So, sounds... Well, it sounds like it's a logical solution, but sure. then it also sounds like it's an incredibly difficult one to do.
1: Oh, yeah, for numerous reasons. I mean, the, the cost alone, not just not just the cost of... The actual materials and mm-hmm. labor to create this, but the cost to
0: the city from
1: lost business, lost sure. productivity. Uh,
0: There's but, actually yeah. also human cost. I mean, there are there are incidents where during the the excavation of various tunnels, uh, do, there might be an accident. You know, uh, I think for the New York City subway system, there were several incidents yes. of people who lost their lives in tragic accidents. It's one of those deals where this is a Giant undertaking, it is filled with risk, particularly whenever you are digging near a body of water. I mean, obviously, right, yeah. uh, in London, it would have been the Thames River mm-hmm. as well as the, the Fleet River. Um, those were both big concerns. In mm-hmm. fact, there's an interesting thing about the Fleet River. I'll talk about that when we get a little further in, uh, where they had a clever way of... Uh, Getting around that? Well, no,
1: no spoilers yet. I, yeah. I think people will enjoy that one. The, uh, the the cool thing though is that to paraphrase this uh, quote, I'm stealing from somebody: uh, "Necessity is the mother of subways."
0: So now we're going to turn our focus specifically on London, Londinium, as uh, as as the character from the IT crowd would call it. Uh, Again, the largest city in the world in the mid-19th century, Mm -hmm. and they had these restrictions. They couldn't allow the railroads to go any further into the city, and they had to figure out how were they going to alleviate this massive amount of traffic and this influx of people that were living in increasingly poor conditions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this was – when I say people, by the way, I should point out that I'm really talking about the middle class.
1: Right, yeah. The queen was fine,
0: and and the stories that you'll hear are grim in many ways because people in the lower classes were really not cared for, or thought about, or taken care of.
1: Absolutely, they
0: were essentially the victims of uh, progress in this case, which is a tragic and common tale. Yes, right. Yep. Whenever you get to this thing where we're making improvements to the city. It benefits a certain part of the population and other parts of the population are essentially forced out. Mm -hmm. And that's a tragic part. It is, however, something that I wanted to acknowledge because I think those people obviously should not be forgotten or glossed over. Now, to be fair, a lot of them were also the criminal element of London. Well, sure, yeah, you know, and
1: that's a, you know, that's, the, there are a thousand ways to analyze that sure. fact, but it is a fact.
0: And it could be, you could argue, and I think convincingly argue, that they were largely the criminal element because their conditions meant that they could not get work in a legal sense. Right. So they were kind of, their hand was forced. Mm-hmm. You know, you still have to make a living somehow. You have to, you have to survive. So yeah. uh we could go down a long rabbit hole, <laughs> a Dickensian rabbit hole. Uh-huh. And talk about this, but we'll we'll just leave it at that. So you get a guy named Charles Pearson. Our hero of the story. Yes, he's a London solicitor. That means lawyer to you and me. <laughs> uh, and he argued that London should allow a centrally located train station to allow people to commute into the city without clogging it up. So he w- his first idea was, let's extend the railways that already uh, terminate at the perimeter of London, mm-hmm. the then perimeter of London. And allow them to come further in. And the city said, no, we can't do that. There's just not space. It's not feasible. Stop asking.
1: We can't even fit another horse in this thing.
0: Right. right. You're barking up the wrong tree. So that's when he said, well, what if instead of that, we end up looking at a subterranean train system? And he goes around and talks to some rich friends of his. Right. And his rich friends see Pearson as someone who has a pretty radical... But potentially lucrative idea mm-hmm. because 700,000 people commuting every, day, every day. day. If you can charge those people even a small amount to take a subterranean train station system mm-hmm. so they can get to their jobs, you have revenue just pouring in. So the investors say, you know, this risk is worth it. We're going to put our money together. So here's one thing that I thought was really cool that I did not realize before we started researching. This. What's that? that the underground, the tube in London, started out as a private enterprise. Yeah. Isn't it that was weird? Not a government funded thing. And especially when you think of England. Right. We think of a lot of government funded programs. It's mm-hmm. a much more socialist style economy. Um, it's not pure socialism, obviously. There are only there are elements that are very socialist. Mm-hmm. And you would think, oh well the subway system must have been one of those. No, it was a private enterprise. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it would become a competitive private enterprise. Yeah. So uh, the the decision to go ahead was made. And so how would they move forward? Well, they started looking at what the various techniques would be to actually create this underground system because, all right, they've decided they're going to build these tunnels. Right. They clearly didn't have the magic tunneling machine. Like right. It wasn't like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen where <laughs> some Jules Verne type device comes up with a a nose cone that has threads on it and it just drills down and lays down track behind mm-hmm. it that's not how it worked no so let's talk about the technique they used to build a tunnel okay well,
1: all right yeah let's do it this is crazy put your put your mind back in the uh in the body in the context of someone in 1860 right and and, and picture you're hanging out with the rest of your mover and shaker friends you yep. know some aristocrats there And they're talking about putting people in the ground in a moving vehicle. This is bizarre. So they started out in, they, they started out kind of creating a new level of surface. Mm -hmm. Um, because they dug a big trench, you know, like maybe 20 feet across in an existing road. Then they would lay two tracks side by side and they would cover that over with brick. So it's kind of like they were raising the surface a little bit. Right. And they only put – this wasn't perfect. They called it cut and cover. Um, it, was, it was a massive paint. We're a family show, so it's a massive paint in the keister yeah. for all this construction. Um, like, Were you ever around during the Big Dig days? Did you ever go to Boston?
0: Oh, I, I, I went to Boston when they were uh, – not during the Big Dig. It was after that. But it was – I was in Boston when there were still some fallout from Big Dig. And uh, it was yeah. a bit of a –
1: it's crazy to stop yeah. a city like that, and yeah. they, uh, so um, there there are some interesting statistics here about just how much of a problem. All of this construction, sorry, because they didn't start with just like one tunnel. No. They did a network of them. Uh and they uh and they said what we're going to do is build something that connects these rail stations like King Cross King's Cross excuse me to a more central location. Called
0: Farrington. Yes, yes. Farrington was the first uh underground station, tube station on the uh London Underground. Mm-hmm. And so it connected to these other various Rail stations. So this was like the the centralized point, and people would have to pay a ticket. They first they had to pay a ticket to ride whatever rail line they were on. Right. Then they had to pay an extra ticket to get on the underground to get into London. But if that's your your option, so that you can get to work without spending six hours uh, mm-hmm. behind a horse's butt, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna pay that money if you can.
1: I mean, even if you like horse butts.
0: Yeah, I mean, because come on, time is money. <laughs> so this cut and co- cover method meant that whenever they were installing the rail lines, that entire street was off limits. You could not go down that street, mm-hmm. uh, as at least not in, a, in any kind of vehicle. You might be able to walk along the very sides of it. Yeah. But uh, it meant that it was incredibly disruptive to businesses, to homes, whenever the tunnel was being built along that particular stretch of the street. And they would build up this... this, uh, this framework around the trench they had made, that's where they would brick it up so that it would become an enclosed tunnel. Mm-hmm. And uh, it actually reminds me a little bit of the way Disney World was built. Because at Disney World uh they wanted to make an underground system. They call it the Utilidors, the oh, yeah, yeah, utility yeah. corridors. Uh huh. But the problem with the Disney World is that it's in Florida. And by that I mean in Florida, your water table is really close to the surface of the wow, ground. It's very shallow. You can't dig very deep before yeah. you hit water. So instead of uh, digging down, what they did was they built the utilidors. Then they dumped ground on top of the utilidors <laughs> and effectively <laughs> built the ground up. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. It's not quite as ext- as as extreme as that because they did dig trenches. Mm-hmm. But in general, these trains were just a few meters below the surface of the street. Yes sir. The very early ones were. Mm-hmm. Um and you were saying that it was a massive pain in the Keister. That's putting it lightly. More than twelve thousand people were displaced from their homes during the construction of the Farrington station. Mm-hmm. Those were twelve thousand people who were in that low, low class uh in London. So some people, like the, the middle class, largely considered it a positive thing, because they thought about cleaning out London. Right, a little
1: they, gentrification.
0: Yeah, they emptied out the slums, right? They yeah. got rid of the, the undesirables. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, if you were one of those said undesirables, it was not such a pleasant experience.
1: No, no, it wasn't a pleasant experience. And, and furthermore, Jonathan, yeah. e- even if you're one of the middle class people who says, you know what? I am done walking with the the schmucks and the norms right I'm gonna ride the train then I'm gonna pay extra for the underground even if you could afford to do that, you would find that this was not an ideal situation because the same kind of thing that they put above the ground <laughs> is the same the same uh the same steam and smoke uh burping uh metal monstrosities they put uh above ground are the same ones they put. Underground.
0: Yeah. They were using steam-powered trains. This is before they were moving to electric trains. We'll we'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. So, again, you're using coal, coal fire, to mm-hmm. heat up a boiler so that it generates steam, which is what's giving you the ability to... Create the power needed to move a train. Right. Yep. So some of the some of the steam engine designs they had had steam capturing systems, so it wasn't blowing tons of steam into these underground tunnels. Right. But you still had coal smoke. Yeah. So and you're waiting. Did you <laughs> see any pictures of the earliest underground trains? Oh uh, yeah. They yeah. they had uncovered trains like yeah. it was a wagon essentially being pulled by a steam engine.
1: <laughs> so you're getting uh, if you're worried about not hitting your daily coal smoke intake. You just hop on the train because it would hit you.
0: Yeah, they actually got to a point where customers were complaining about the smell of sulfur and smoke Mm -hmm. and all the steam to the point where the company that had created this underground line did a PR blitz where they talked about the beneficial... Elements of steam and smoke inhalation. I'm not making that. They're like, it's good for you. Except they're saying it with a British accent. Yeah. It's jolly well good for you. That sort of thing. <laughs> um, yourself. Yeah. So just breathe deeply. Enjoy the smooth smell of coal smoke.
1: No, of um, course, that's not, you know, sustainable and no. that's not the case today. Uh, so, so they continued making some improvements, right?
0: Yeah. And the, the big ones, would be at the end of the 19th century, so in the 1890s. So while London was recovering from the uh, terrible antics of Jack the Ripper, the subway system was starting to really come into its own. Mm -hmm. There were two really big things that started to happen at this point. One was that they started to dig deeper tunnels because they were creating this network of train systems. Now keep in mind, that first Rail system that was put in was from one company, but other private companies saw how successful that was and decided they were going to connect other points of London to one another. Mm -hmm. And they just started to dig their own tunnels. So you had competing companies making subway lines. Right now, they weren't linking together necessarily, and and the points where they would share a station, like you would get this uneasy partnership where they'd be like, "All right, we'll build a station where." your line can stop there and our line can stop there. But if you're a passenger and you need to switch from one line to the other, you have to buy a new ticket. Yeah. Yep. Because one line is operated by one company and the other line is operated by another company. So if you're on the Piccadilly line and you need to get on, I wish I knew a name of another line, then you would have to pay <laughs> extra to switch, to transfer sure. because they're operated by two different entities. Yeah. And that was, this, that was unfortunate. Well, but, this can be messy. You know? Yeah. But the reason it was so possible was because they were able to dig these deeper tunnels. Mm. And the reason for that actually dates back to the early 1800s, but was an idea that had not been, um, been implemented for the subways. It was, uh, to use a tunneling shield, which was an invention from a guy named Marc Isambard Brunel. Oh, great pronunciation, it's Jonathan. French expatriate. <laughs> Actually, um, yeah, he, he had come up with this idea and his idea was pretty simple. Mm-hmm. He said, all right, let's, let's create a cast iron circular or at least a, like a, a, a thing that would have kind of like an arched top shield. Right. Yeah. All right. So it's, it's made out of cast iron. It's very sturdy and you put that at the, the, the rock face or the, the earth face of your tunnel and it has compartments in it that people can be Inside, and they can dig from that point. So it's almost like it's a, a portal. Yeah. But on the, the, instead of it leading anywhere, there's just earth there. Mm-hmm. So you get your, your miners there with hand tools. We're talking shovels, pickaxes, that kind of stuff, um, digging away the ground. And they dig as far as they can uh, to kind of clear out the space immediately in front of the shield.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When there's enough space moved out of the way, m- enough earth moved out of the way, they could use jacks to jack the shield forward into the tunnel until it was pressing up against the earth again, and then they would continue. Now, the purpose of this was to provide stability in the earth as they went lower down, because they're actually digging underground now. They're no longer digging a trench and then covering the trench. They're
1: digging down and then horizontally.
0: Exactly. So they dig a shaft first and then install this shield and start digging their horizontal tunnel. And they needed to make sure that the tunnel was going to remain uh, sturdy and stable and not collapse in on the miners. Mm-hmm. So when they would move forward, there would be another team that would lay bricks to create stability in the, in the area that had just been excavated. Yeah. So it was a very painstaking process. Yeah. Dig, 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 remove the spoil as much as possible, push forward the shield, lay down the bricks in the now new tunnel, and keep on going until you're finished which sounds crazy. Now, Brunel had come up with this while trying to create a tunnel that went across the or underneath the Thames. Mm -hmm. Now, the Thames divides London. You've got a northern section of London and a southern section of London, and the Thames runs through. So he wanted to create a tunnel that would allow uh, horse traffic to go underneath the Thames this wasn't meant originally as a subway. It was meant as a, a tunnel for, for just regular horse-drawn carriages yeah, yeah, and yeah. carts and that kind
1: of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: but what would happen is uh, it would take decades for him to finish this, by the way. It, it were, there were a lot of problems. There were political issues mm-hmm. where funding was ran out and then they, they couldn't get funding for a long time. There was a change of, of politicians and then he was able to get funding again and complete it. Um, and... Finished it sometime in the 1840s. It started in the 1820s. It finished in the 1840s. Wow. And in 1865, uh, one of the one of the underground companies, one of the companies running trains, purchased the tunnel and repurposed it for uh, trains running underneath the Thames, which is a very very intelligent move. Right, uh, but. They started to actually use this very technique to make new subway tunnels like subway tunnels on purpose as opposed to converting it in eighteen ninety
1: and we We should also say that at this point in our story, the public is not as adverse to the underground as they were originally right. you You can see some pretty self assured uh <laughs> self assured people i mean history is full of people who say like well they're if the good Lord intended us to fly. He would yeah. have given, given us wings. Yes,
0: yes, yeah. or or at least some sort of rotocopter device, <laughs> attached directly from the top of our heads.
1: Right. So yeah. people were saying that Pearson and then um, that that later uh, Brunel were essentially kind of quacks for yeah. saying get d- put people underground. And uh, now when we see these new tunnels being dug and we see all this intrigue coming and going, but not permanently stopping. This progress, we also see the public uh, becoming at least less averse.
0: Right. And once they were able to demonstrate that this was an effective means of getting around London, people took to it quickly. Mm-hmm. So uh, before I go on into the further improvements, let's take another quick break. Let's, let's take a look at what it must have been like the day that the original underground station Farrington opens and how that turned out. So it opened on January 9th, 1863 for context in the United States. That's when the civil war is raging here in the States. Mm -hmm. So civil war is raging here in the States. Meanwhile, in London, the first subterranean train station opens. So, uh, that first train had those uncovered carriages I was talking about pulled by a steam engine powered by coal. Yeah. So not necessarily the most comfortable way, but it was incredibly efficient and it was a huge success and demand required the company to increase capacity very quickly. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't long before they had to have enough trains so that one would be arriving every 10 minutes.
1: Right. Because uh, this Quickly went from being fanciful to indispensable. Right, and um, and I, I love that you're pointing out the the larger historical context there with the Civil War, uh, because there's a tendency we have sometimes when we look at history to see each event as occurring in its own isolated like you know, timeline. Right, like like, yeah, like, yeah. It,
0: like it's all completely here, and nothing else in the world is going on at that time. Right, yeah. So one of the things that I thought was interesting was that on the, the first day, they actually had to shut the station down at one point because there were too many people who wanted to ride the train. Wow. Yeah, it was just it was too crowded. So again, they needed to get this capacity up to deal with the demand. Um, but that also meant that you had more smoke and steam filling up these tunnels because you had more trains running through. Yeah. And that really wrote, brought to, to people's attention that this was not ideal. And they had talked about possibly using other methods to move trains through the system, including a cable system where the train would actually be attached to a cable that would be winched and it would pull the train through the system, or pneumatic systems or hydraulic systems. Mm -hmm. But it turned out steam was the cheap way, and the cheap way won. And the
1: non-experimental way as well. We have to remember that.
0: Yeah, it was a proven methodology for getting people around. And one last story I wanted to mention about the opening day, one of my favorite bits, was that uh, the company invited the Prime Minister of England, <laughs> Henry John Temple, the V-Count Palmerston. So we call him Palmerston because that's the way the Brits do. Yep. You know, name them by their title. Mm-hmm. Um, he was 79 at the time, and he was invited to ride on the first carriage. And his his reply was that he declined because he said he, quote, wished to remain above ground a little longer.
1: End quote. See, I I totally get that. I that's that's first off, that's way more polite than it needs to be. Well, that's so hilarious. British, it's right? So very British. It's yes.
0: incredible. Very dry. Like he's seventy nine years old. I yeah. wish to remain above ground
1: just a little longer. And and f- for the record, I'm sure everybody knows this, but we say that as a huge compliment because we love dry humor.
0: Oh yeah, no, so. I'm not criticizing. I adore it. So. The time we get to uh, the 1890s when they're digging these deep holes, that's when they hit the other big advance. So the deep holes were were great because it meant that they could actually lay out a lot more track. Obviously, Mm -hmm. if you lay out track using the cut-and-cover method, you can't really have a crossing track that way. No, right. So you have to dig underneath in order to do that. Uh, The deep holes, the deep lines allowed that to happen. The other big development that really improved things was the use of electrical systems. So you could use electrical trains. Ah. Uh, Huge difference, because now you don't need the smoke, you don't have the steam. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was uh, an enormous improvement in the experience of taking the underground, the tube.
1: Yeah, it was also uh, many times more complicated.
0: Yeah, yeah. It it meant that you had to have a third and fourth rail, actually, with the, (laughs) the London one. They had a direct current approach all subways, as far as I am aware, all subways that are electrical anyway, run on direct current, Mm -hmm. uh, which has its own issues that we'll talk about in a second. But uh, they had a third rail and a fourth rail. One was essentially the positive rail, one was the negative Mm -hmm. rail. And that's what provided the electricity to the electric cars so that they could uh, move through without the need for steam. Um, Very important development. And We still have the continuation of all these private companies operating these lines.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, by the way, funny trivia. I'm guessing here, but that's probably the etymology of the third rail as a uh, figure of speech, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, it comes from this era so, and, and yeah. electric trains in general, because subways are one version, but there are other electric train sure. systems, obviously. And, there, and
1: then, you know, as you were saying, there's this hodgepodge of th- this motley crew, if you will, of uh different private companies that are teaming up or they're not teaming up. Yeah. And historically, when we see stuff like that, what it leads to will be um, a, a great first phase right? Yeah. of competition, yeah. innovation. Right.
0: So that. then you get this incredible outburst of growth throughout right. the city.
1: But the uh, as anybody who has ever tried the, to find the right charger for a oh, cell yeah. phone knows, uh, the standards can be different. Right. And eventually that creates enormous problems down the road.
0: Well, especially if you wanted to, let's say that you have a complicated commute and you need to change trains Mm -hmm. twice let's Mm -hmm. say that would that might mean that you have to pay three times once to get on the first train then you change you have to pay again right you change you have to pay again Mm -hmm. and that was not a good experience for consumers and people were starting to complain about it and that led to parliament creating the london transport which was created in 1933 Mm -hmm. so the purpose of the london transport was to bring all these companies together and it itself was a public corporation financed by private companies that unified the system. So if you bought a ticket on one system, it was good for your trip all the way through, uh, you know, a lot of subway systems. Are essentially built on that same principle, although many of them have kind of a metered approach. Right. Uh, in, in London, they have different zones. And if you're traveling from one zone to another zone, there may be an extra amount that you have to pay in order to use the subway system. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the logic there is the further you travel, the more your ticket is going to cost. Right. Uh, which is not unusual. There are other places like Atlanta where it doesn't matter how far you're going, you, you're, your ticket is is one specific cost. Yeah. But it also really doesn't matter because it doesn't go that many places. So.
1: Yeah, I like to think of it as a work in progress, man. Yeah, um, so do I. One thing that they one thing that they uh found as well, okay, first I, I don't want to discount that innovation because yeah. I know it's not a tech thing, but it is more it is more than just the bureaucracy it may sound like. This really made made the whole thing a um not an organism, but, you know, it, it made it one thing instead of, you know, 18. And that meant that they were able to address some bigger problems collectively as a single unit. Because one of the big questions that uh, a lot of you guys are probably waiting for us to talk about uh, will be, what do you find in the ground when you dig a tunnel deeper and deeper and deeper.
0: Yeah. So one thing, water, you could find water. Aquifers could be a problem where you have to figure out, well, how do we deal with this? And usually you would have to bring in pumps, pump water out until you had gotten a dry system and then Mm -hmm. you create your tunnel and you seal it up as fast as you can so that water can't get in. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was a big one. Also, well, the same things that caused issues for traffic were also issues for Things like getting water around your city, like supplying water to people Mm -hmm. or sewer lines to take waste away or electrical conduits to get power to people as time went on. And many places would bury these. But that means that you have to worry about that when you're digging your tunnel. And depending on how old the system is, there may not even be records of where these things are now. So you had to be yes. really careful when you were digging <laughs> and you might encounter something that wasn't on your plans You're like there's a sewer pipe here I don't know if it's still in use that yeah. could be a bad thing
1: or that Cthulhu entrance we found uh, right on six uh,
0: it's also another good example so with the case of conduits sewer lines mm-hmm. water lines uh either you would end up having to excavate around them that was often the most uh the most uh logical approach mm-hmm. was to try and and just alter the plan a little bit so that you would avoid them. Uh, or you could actually incorporate them into the design. So some of these had, uh, they would suspend pipes or sewer, you know, sewer pipes or water pipes or electrical conduits or whatever from the ceiling of the tunnel. They would be built in so that you would have supports from the ceiling holding these in place. Because keep in mind, originally they were buried in the ground. They were completely supported by the ground below them. Mm-hmm. So in this case, they just replace the ground below them with whatever supports they have and suspend it from the ceiling. Uh, uh, so there were a couple of different options there. And one of the other ones, uh, one of the other things I thought was really cool. Remember I mentioned about the, the Fleet River and that was going to. Play yeah.
1: Part. Yeah. Is it time? Yeah. So Farrington
0: <laughs> itself was built on the river bed of the Fleet River. That was, that was where they decided to, uh, place this. It made the most sense logistically. But then you have the question of, what the heck do you do with the river?
1: Yeah, what do you do with the river?
0: Well, what they did was they made pipes. They let the river flow into the pipes. They buried the pipes below the ground of where the riverbed was. So now the Fleet River flowed below the its original riverbed, which is where Farrington Station was. Mm-hmm. This, however, caused issues occasionally. What? No. Yeah, whenever it would rain really hard... <laughs> The river would overflow and the station would start to flood, which in the days of the electric trains meant that sometimes you had shorts. Right. So sensors would start shorting out. And sensor shorting out would mean that the whole system would have red lights go up, which tells the drivers they can't go any further because there was no longer a reliable means of making sure that the track was clear ahead of you. Mm -hmm. So it would require people to actually go out and physically check the tracks to try and find the shorts. And I watched a a a, a documentary mm-hmm. before we came in here. It was a it was the tube and underground history of London and it was this uh, hour long documentary, really well done. And it starts off with this supervisor of the Farrington station and as soon as he gets in, he's you know, he's showing the crew around, he's explaining things. He gets a call that says there has been this this problem of sensors no longer working and there are all these red lights. He says, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And he goes down into the into the tunnels and he says, oh, this is the worst shift of my bloody life. He's walking around checking for these, these sensors and then he got back up and explained what I just explained to yeah. you, that it was on the bed of the old Fleet River and that the river itself was flowing underneath the station and occasionally it would come up on station level because of too much rain.
1: That's right. For the world's first subway system, this uh, London buried a river alive. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah. you Think about it.
0: I mean, you, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. And the river really was just, it was... Look, you got a nice river here. It'd be a real shame if Someone buried it.
1: Uh, so before we before we get into uh, into too much trouble for our for our river jokes, of yes. which you and I both have uh, several more.
0: Yes, we are dancing we, around river jokes. <laughs> we are river joke dancing. Uh,
1: I'm not going to take the bait, man. But but we 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 should talk about um, the modern era trends yes. today, right?
0: Right. So. Uh, your, your trains are running on electric systems for the most mm-hmm. part. Uh, New York system uses 625 volts of direct current to power trains. London uses 630 volts of direct current uh, and has both the third and fourth rail. Uh, New York's has just the third rail. Um, so they're carrying high current but relatively low voltage. High voltage would be considered over 1,500 volts. Okay, yeah. So the reason why it's, it's relatively low voltage is, is to minimize the risk of electrocution. Mm-hmm. Electrocution of course means death through uh, when you encounter an electrical current with enough voltage to kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, electrocution you know, like you wouldn't say i got electrocuted if you got shocked. Electrocuted means you are no longer alive.
1: Yeah, so, electrocution is always fatal.
0: Yes, it is by definition. <laughs> uh so they wanted to make sure that this was safe. So they're using direct current. They're using relatively low voltages. That meant they had to use high current to push the power to the trains and make it an effective means for the trains to receive the power they needed to operate. It also meant that since you're using direct current, you had to have lots of different substations throughout the system to provide that electricity Mm -hmm. because... Direct current, the effectiveness of direct current decreases as the distance increases between you and wherever the electricity is being generated. This was the problem Edison ran into Mm -hmm. when he was advocating for direct current to be the standard in the United States. Westinghouse's argument was if we go with direct current, uh, the effectiveness of direct current decreases the the, the further away you place the load from the point of generation. Right the less effective direct current is, it would mean that we would have to build power stations every couple of miles, Yeah, which, as you pointed out when we were talking earlier,
1: (laughs) Edison wasn't necessarily adverse to. Yeah, he had no problem with that. Uh, And as you pointed out, uh, Westinghouse, however, was not convinced that lining Edison's pockets with substations was the best.
0: Right. So (laughs) Westinghouse's argument was to use alternating current, which allows you to create transformers where you can step up or step down the voltage Relatively easily, just using a couple of different coils of wire uh, that was not that's not an option with the trains. they wanted to go with direct current. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why you have to have these uh, electric substations throughout your system so that the power is is uh, distributed properly so the trains keep moving. So yeah,
1: speaking of the trains what what's going on with them They're like how have you ever looked inside the the Marta train and and seen the person? driving or looked at the controls that they operate? I have. I would love to do that one day, but apparently you have to train or yeah. qualify. I've, I've
0: never been in the cabin while they've operated it, but you know there are some MARTA trains where uh, they have the the sections at the front of the train car. You mm. might not be – you're not You're not at the front of the train. You're somewhere in the middle or toward the yeah. back or whatever. But you can be right there where you might be on another train car that's a driving car. It's just not being used as a driving car at Right, that point. yeah. And then you can look in at the controls all you like, and no one <laughs> freaks out because there's no one in there. Right, yeah. But the controls are really basic, right? There's there's essentially a throttle control, mm-hmm. which tells the motor how hard to work, and thus how fast the train will go. And then there's a brake, and there are a couple of other controls for things like the doors. Sure. There's a radio system, mm-hmm. generally speaking, so that uh, if passengers have an emergency or need to communicate to the driver for some reason, they can do so. Right. Uh, and these trains have a specific name in the industry. They're called rolling stock.
1: Weird. That just
0: makes me think of cattle. uh, Same here. And sometimes I feel like it when I'm on, when I'm on one of these trains. But yeah, that's, that's their general name is rolling stock. Uh, some of them are entirely computerized, so you don't even have drivers on those trains. They're all automated. Oh. It makes me think of the, um, the plane train at Hartsfield International <laughs> yeah, Airport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they, 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 there's no driver on that. It's a computerized system. It's just
1: a thing that kind of goes around the airport.
0: Yeah. Whereas uh, we're talking about these, they, they would be for the entire system. So, mm-hmm. uh, New York City subways are being upgraded over time, and they would be fully computerized uh, once the upgrade is done. And you wouldn't have subway train drivers; it would all be computerized.
1: And there's the, there's still like a human being in a supervisory position. At sure, some point, yeah, right? you
0: have to have people who are overseeing the system okay. itself. So, think of a like a control, like 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 mission control okay. for a space, yeah, for a space mission. You'd have people who are overseeing the track systems, monitoring them, making sure that you're still getting a signal on all the tracks. You know, that's one nice thing about using electric tracks is that if there's a break in that connection, you're going to know about it because you're going to suddenly have a section of track where there's no electricity generated. You're going to see that there's no longer a complete circuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are sensors placed along the tracks to make sure you know the position and the motion of any given train on any given part of the, the system. There are usually surveillance cameras that allow you to get a look at that. Uh, So these are all very important elements of any subway system, whether it's computerized or whether it's still operating mainly under manual control. You want to have this kind of command center where you can see what's going on and make sure that if maybe there's a signal that's not functioning properly, Mm -hmm. and it's telling drivers that they cannot go forward. Uh, If you are the administrator and you see that, the train needs to move forward so that passengers can get off the train safely, and then they, they can then send out a maintenance crew. They, you know, The administrators can actually see ahead and say, all right, your path is clear, or maybe you need to switch. We're going to switch you to this other track so that you can pull in safely, and then we'll shut everything down and, and fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been on a train where that has happened, and it's not the fastest uh experience right it does, it's not always the most smooth process mm-hmm. but it is one of those things that these these uh, operations have to keep, take into consideration uh some of the other modern trains have regenerative regenerative braking mm-hmm. so they can regenerate some electrical power they can store that in batteries for uh whenever they're having to apply brakes mm-hmm. um and you usually you have uh uh, the only other thing you have to worry about are the various, if, if you're talking about manually driven trains, sure. are those lights I was talking about? Ah, uh, yes, yeah. And th- this is,
1: look, I'll, I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah, this is one of those things that I like to say would be a dream job, but I think it's just because I, I want to like do it for an afternoon. Yeah. So, if anybody listening to the show,
0: <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of like kind of like being a, a an engineer on a train or a conductor on a train. Yeah, right? like, it's like that, I mean, there is this. I think lots of people have this desire. Like it's just kind of a cool mm-hmm. sort of experience to do once. Uh, I imagine there is some skill to it because you have to know exactly where to pull up in a station. Yeah, um, some stations like like in MARTA we have different. Lengths of train depending upon the routes they're going mm-hmm. on. So some of them are express trains and they're shorter, uh, and they make a much shorter run along the line than the full length trains mm-hmm. do. So you have to know where to pull up in a short train compared to a long train because mm-hmm. uh, it makes a big difference. You don't want you don't want everyone having to run all the way down the platform in order to get on your train.
1: I think they do that on purpose, sometimes. maybe sometimes. But okay, so the reason I'm bringing this up, yeah. is because. Uh, it sounds like this might this might be our last chance, man. This might be our last chance to be uh, human. Uh, human subway drivers. What what's the future of the
0: subway? So computerization is definitely a big one, and then there are some other proposed uh, methods of getting people around in trains through tunnel systems that owe a lot to subways, but operate on a very different level. And the big one being the Hyperloop. Which tech stuff did a full episode about the Hyperloop? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're curious what the Hyperloop is, it was a proposal that Elon Musk uh, or Elon Musk mm-hmm. made, um, where he said, "What? Th- think about a tunnel system where trains can travel through the system. It's uh, the air has been largely pumped out. It's not a true vacuum, but it's right, yeah, close to vacuum, so that you have minimal air resistance." And you could make these incredibly rapid train uh, trips between San Francisco and Los Angeles in a fraction of the amount of time it would normally take you to get between those. That could be uh, a future of train systems, too, although, granted, that works really better for long-distance travel, not sure. inner-city travel. Yeah. So uh, I do think computerization is the way it's going to go. And we have some fun little cool facts about subways in general that we just thought, you know, it didn't really fit in the rest <laughs> of the episode. Um, one of those is that you may have heard about abandoned subway lines and abandoned subway stations, and those are totally a thing.
1: Mm-hmm. They're real. And I know it sounds, uh, like some X-Files episode or a spy thriller, but, uh, human civilization, it turns out, is, uh, depressingly good at losing things. Yeah. Including subways.
0: In London, for example, when population densities changed and commuting patterns changed, some stations became irrelevant or obsolete. Mm -hmm. And so they would stop servicing those stations. And sometimes there would be entire lines that would be obsolete. So tunnels would be unused. And there are still stations underneath the streets of London that look more or less the way they did when they closed. They haven't, haven't changed significantly. I mean, for one thing... Getting down into the subway is incredibly dangerous and Mm -hmm. not easy to do. And I think illegal. Very much, to assume. Yeah. So it's not like this is the kind of place where squatters are going to, you know, find their way down Mm -hmm. there. But uh, there are some subway stations and subway lines that exist but are in no way used anymore. And that's kind of interesting. It's not just London. That's a good example because it's the oldest. Yeah. But there um, there are other ones in other subway systems as well. Uh, another is that subway systems have to have massive ventilation systems, mm-hmm. even after the steam coal era. Right. Yes. need them because you're underground. And mm-hmm. while you might have stations that are open to the air, uh, that's not enough to circulate air through the whole mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. And if you're in an underground station waiting with a bunch of other commuters, you're all breathing in and out. You're all breathing out carbon dioxide, that starts to accumulate, you don't have any circulation, things could get uncomfortable and deadly fairly quickly actually. It doesn't yeah. take that long.
1: Depending on where you are, especially in some places, uh like the the Moscow uh subway system, which is has famously deep uh yeah. stations. Like that is out and out dangerous.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and Even if you're thinking, well, I'm not going to be in the station that long, just think, we're talking about a continuous flow of people coming down there, breathing out carbon dioxide, because it's not just when you're there. It's all the people who came before you. It's all the people who are coming after you. Mm -hmm. It's going to eventually get to the point where it's so stuffy it's not it's not breathable. So there are all these ventilation systems built into subway systems. There are ventilation shafts. There are giant air, essentially climate control style systems to recirculate air, to pull fresh air from the surface down into the tunnels to make it safe. Uh, the New York City one has a system that is capable of moving 600,000 cubic feet of fresh air every single minute.
1: That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's pretty necessary. I mean, I've been to the New York subway. Yeah. more fresh air, the better, in my opinion.
1: And there's there's also, so there's this continual operation that is sort of behind the curtain for the average subway user, Mm. you will probably not ever see the the massive amount of work that uh, makes it possible for people to go underground and then come back out alive. Right. Ventilation is one of those, but that's not the only one.
0: No, the other one being that you're on a train, the train's running on rails, you have to make sure those rails are lined up properly. I mean, these are these rails aren't it's not like it's one solid rail that goes the entire length of the, of the train line. Right. Mm-hmm. It's in segments and segments means that over time, the ground might shift the train, just the wear and tear of trains going on. It could make things shift where lot lines can get out of alignment, like two rails might get out of alignment with one another and that could lead to very dangerous conditions like a, a train derailing if it's not – the, if the tracks aren't aligned properly. So in order to make sure the tracks are lined up, a lot of subway systems use uh, geometry trains, mm-hmm. which sounds like it's my least favorite subject in school being forced <laughs> upon me in a mass transit mean right. method, but it's not. Oh, good. No, geometry <laughs> trains – Geometry trains are specifically uh, designed to check the alignment of rails, and they have uh, equipment aboard, including a computer system that can analyze uh, data and a collection system that usually involves infrared, like uh, a infrared laser type system, to check for alignment. It can check how out of true a rail is, uh-huh,
1: okay. and
0: if it goes outside a certain threshold, it it create you know it logs it, it says. At this point, this rail is no longer aligned within the the safety zone, mm-hmm. and it may very well be that it's still all right to use at that moment, but it it's getting dangerously close to not being okay. So then it logs that, sends in a maintenance request, and a maintenance crew will have to go out to that point and adjust the tracks so that they were in alignment again. Uh, it's a very useful system to have that, Um and it's one of those things that is necessary over time. Yeah. And uh, one other cool fact, it's not in our, our notes, but it was one that we talked about briefly before we came in here, is that subway systems have been used uh, to keep people safe during wartime and, mm-hmm. and related type events. Like in, in the Blitz, when London was being bombed, often uh, uh, citizens of London would end up retreating into the underground because there was enough of uh protection there to keep them safe during the bombings
1: yeah so if you are lucky enough to live near a subway station yeah if there's some sort of blitz which i hope never happens uh to anyone but if right. it, there's some sort of situation like that uh, then that is one of the best bets for you to go as long as the ventilation is working
0: yeah i often think of uh like when I've been, I've been in downtown Atlanta a couple times when um, tornadoes have moved through.
1: Oh yeah, and that's
0: my go-to. <laughs> like yeah. I want to get underground <laughs> now. You know, <laughs> uh, we actually had tornadoes move through Atlanta mm. uh, several years ago. Now, yeah, but tore they, up the Westin. They, yeah, they went straight through downtown. Mm-hmm. Like it was like it was like tornadoes were looking for Dragon Con. It was All yeah. the Dragon Con locations got hit.
1: They might have been cosplayers. It
0: could have been. It could have been people <laughs> it could have been people saying, "Am I here's my theory." Okay. People from the future, uh-huh, coming back in time to attend Dragon Con. Makes sense. Cosplaying as Sharknado, not realizing they overshot their travel and went back to before Sharknado oh. came out.
1: Oh. Yeah, time travel is like, just the scheduling is tricky.
0: And they didn't stick around to apologize or explain because they were <laughs> so embarrassed that they had overshot Yeah, when they needed to come back. They were like, oh, this is, Sharknado's not even out. Our costumes don't make sense.
1: Let's go, let's go. Yeah, I mean, you work hard on a costume. It's so easy to feel
0: dumb. I, it all makes
1: sense <laughs> to me now. Well, I am going to possibly uh cosplay as
0: Pearson. That would be good. You could go around and try and convince people to give you lots of money to go underground. And I just need to start digging, right, Jonathan? That's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> just get a shovel, a shovel and a song in your heart and you're good to go. <laughs> so this was a lot of fun to look into. I mean, this was one of those things where I know it became a large, largely a history lesson.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: but to, to know sort of the massive undertaking it requires to build something like a subway system, it really lets you appreciate that technology is more than a story about how an object works. Mm-hmm. You no, know, when you flip a switch, what is happening? The the story of technology goes well beyond circuits or motors or engines. It goes into the story of the people around it. Who were the people responsible for bringing that technology to life? What sort of hoops did they have to jump through in order for it to become a reality? was it something that was adopted early on or was it something that that ended up being dormant for years before people said this is a brilliant idea those to me are the really amazing stories that I get to tell on this podcast. And Ben, I am so thankful you could join me for this one.
1: Oh, the pleasure is absolutely all mine, Jonathan. And that was a really, uh, that was very well said. And I think it's, I think it's so appropriate for such a milestone episode mm-hmm. as well. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of inspired now. I, w- I want to go out and uh, invent a train system. <laughs> <You know?
0: laughs> I would, I would like to at least, you know, Leave some sort of positive impact and, <laughs> before I shuffle off this mortal coil. Uh, and if this podcast happens to be it, I'm cool with that. Not, not this particular episode. I'm not ready to go right now. I mean, right. this podcast in general. Okay. You I want just to want to s- be clear on that. Yeah.
1: You want to stay above ground a little just longer. Just a little bit
0: longer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Me and, uh, me and the Prime Minister of England, we want to stay above ground mm-hmm. just a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was a lot of fun. And of course, you can all find Ben's work all over how stuff works uh, car stuff is the mm. podcast you do with scott
1: benjamin yeah who's also appeared on this show and uh got a show called stuff they don't want you to know now you and i are thick as thieves we hang out on brain stuff and we hang out on what the stuff and then sometimes we just uh we just make interesting things but i do want to do something that I, I i've done uh most times when I uh get a guest spot here mm-hmm. on your show and that is to plug your other show Forward Thinking to oh. anybody for anybody who hasn't checked it out if you like if you like tech stuff if you like talking about uh, especially the stories around technology and possibilities then do check that show out on YouTube and iTunes.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a that show is a lot of fun to do. Uh the the video series is phenomenal. Uh, it's I get to work with some of the most talented people, mm. uh, the producers, the editors, uh, the writers. Because I'm too. one of yeah, it can be really funny. They wanted to, they wanted to see the future through my eyes, and <laughs> you can't do that without being a little corny and goofy. Uh, it's largely serious, but I do get to have fun with it, and um, very fun to do. And then of course the audio podcast has Lauren Vogelbaum and Joe McCormick in it. Uh, both of whom have been obviously, uh, guest podcasters and Lauren's my former co-host. So if you missed that interaction, you should go check that out. It's fantastic. Uh, this has been great. Guys, I am so happy to have reached episode 700. I can't wait to get to episode 1400. I'm even going to skip anything special for 1000. That's not true. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'll do for 1000. That's in like three years. So let's I can... have a parade. Yeah. <laughs> How parades work, Jonathan. <laughs> Everyone always asks me to do how how stuff works works or yeah. how tech stuff works, but I've done those.
1: Uh-huh. You need
0: to look at episodes 500 and 600, but it is uh, a lot of fun to do these kind of special episodes. And of course, I'm always interested to hear what our listeners have to say. If you guys have any requests for specific episodes, maybe there's someone you want me to interview, maybe there's a particular guest host you really want to have back on for a particular topic, let me know. Send me a message. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Drop me a line on Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr. The handle at all three is techstuffhsw, and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.